The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good evening. It's, uh, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, I saw someone this evening that I haven't seen in years. That's delightful, a friend who is inspirational to me. It's a, it's a wonderful way to start the evening. Lots of friends I've met here tonight. It's a wonderful way to be. You know, in the last few weeks, uh, the speakers have talked about love. And Andrea talked a couple of weeks ago about the emergence of love through the practice of the Eightfold Path. And last week, Robert Cusick talked about the Brahma Viharas, how to, how to practice and cultivate love in life. And yet, and yet, what I want to talk about tonight is non-hatred. Non-hatred in the empathetic heart. And I am drawn to this topic because of all the hatred in the world. I'm drawn to this topic because I have been stunned by the bombings in, uh, between Hamas and the Israelis and the civil war in the Ukraine and invasion of that country and the, the killings in Syria and Ferguson, Missouri, and all of the injustices, the, the, the refugees in the world who are fleeing hatred. The problem isn't the absence of love, it is hatred. And I have found myself struggling with trying to understand hatred. So, so uh, one of the earliest writings, uh, compilations of, of uh, words of the Buddha, uh, is the Dhammapada. And this is Gil Fronstel's translation of that. And it begins in a very familiar way. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind. And suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows. Happiness, like a never-departing shadow. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. Many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. Quarrels end. You know, the, um, in, in this translation, Gill uses the word non-hate as opposed to love. And he does that very deliberately. The Pali word is, for hatred is vera. Non-hatred is avera. And it's very often translated as love. 
the absence of hatred being love. But actually, that the absence of hatred is non-hatred. It is non-hatred. When we think about that, the absence of hate has something more to do with trust and understanding, patience. It's really refusing to be drawn into that really negative space. And you know, um, I have a hard time with the word hatred. Hatred Yes, it's so extreme. You know, I don't think of myself as a hateful person. But I understand very well aversion, aversion, irritation, not liking, wanting things to be different, pushing away. I also know, even though I can't quite understand the hatred of people who really want to kill other people, really want to kill other people, I'm struggling with understanding that. I also believe that everybody just wants to be happy. And my experience tells me that happiness and hatred cannot coexist in the same moment. Aversion and happiness don't exist in the same moment. There's not room for both of them. Yet... There are calls for and against military intervention everywhere. We cannot be allowing this to happen. People have said to me, you Buddhists, you're just so passive. You know, many people are weary of war. Some of us are totally opposed to war. And yet war persists. Martha Crenshaw is a, a researcher at Stanford. Let's see what's the name. They have a Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. And this week, I was reading a report. She's written a chapter for a book. And in this book, she talked about different approaches to terrorism. And one of the, one of the facts that she put out was that Muslims actually bear the brunt of terrorism, suffering between 82 and 97% of all deaths. Muslims. There's a, a, a great rise in suicide attacks. I find myself Imagining, since 9-11, there have been 2,130 such attacks, resulting in 26,866 deaths. 26,866 deaths. And 2,130 people have been so despairing or so confused or so angry that they have ended their own lives They have ended their own lives. And not only that, but they've chosen other people. They've said, well, you're going to end your life also because of this feeling I have. And I've come to realize that it is important for me, it's actually important for me to understand these people. Because one of the things that happens is a kind of depersonalization, you know. 
it's actually very hard, I think, to kill someone. You have to not see them as you or like you. They have to be really different. They have to be, you have to put them in a totally different category. In Ferguson, Missouri, there was a death of a, a young man. And there was also an uprising. There was the fault, and there was the exploitation of the fault. And there was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of calls for vengeance and calls for justice. Very few calls for ending the causes of the inequity that results in a place like Ferguson. Lots of talk about oppression. The kind of talk that is being registered is talk that is very aversive and very hateful. If I call you a name, you feel that. You, that, you take that in, even if you reject what I call you. And it's very personal. And a lot of the hate that is generated in the world is fairly impersonal. We pretend like it doesn't affect us. <laughs> that it does affect us. We live in the intermediate no-man's land that is full of accusations and failures of intent. I read uh, this week a quote from, from Faulkner, and it's a very famous claim. He says, the past is never dead. In fact, it's not even past. This is one of the, well, this is one of the things that we have, is that we, we sort of save up everything. Society saves up everything and lays it down in front of the latest atrocity and says it's all one thing and lives with it constantly. We, we never move on. The, the, uh, the, the realization that, uh, let's say, Eastern Europe has a preponderance of nationalism. Nationalism. It's not religion. It's I am a Moravian or you know, whatever you decide you are. I am an Armenian, and the Armenians have been persecuted and, 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 and. And I was thinking today about the Ukraine. There's a problem with the Russians in eastern Ukraine feeling like they don't have a place. And I read about Russian refugees who are leaving the shelling in eastern Ukraine to go into Russia because they're frightened. We don't often think about them. I haven't been thinking about them. It isn't just those bad guys who are rebelling. You know, there are people who are afraid. And I can understand afraid. I get afraid. I know what that's like. What we're dealing with is aversions between people. You know, the things that you're not like me. You're not like me. We kind of overemphasize that. You're not like me. There's good and there's bad. These people are good, these people are bad. Uh, you know, there are skinny people and obese people. 
There are, uh, there's class consciousness, there's inequality between classes, and we have all kinds of views about what is good and what is bad. When you think of the current political situation, what comes up for you? What comes up for you? Sadness, anger, confusion, fear. Have you meditated on your response to these feelings and really looked at what is coming up for you? So someone asked me this week, she said, she actually asked a group of people, but she said, I'm, I'm, I'm very distressed by all the violence in the world. I don't know what to do with the violence in the world. And there's a, a, a feeling that it is so big and we can't, we can't hold it. We don't know what to do with it. You know? um, and it is, it's too big. And we want to point fingers and we say, if they were just better, this wouldn't be happening. I am not a violent person. The Pali word for aversion is patiga. And it means striking against. Patiga, striking against. This is aversion. We're not talking about hatred here. We're taking the soft word aversion, right? Striking against. And that's what we're doing. We're saying, oh, no, I don't like that. I don't want you. So one thing that happens when we encounter uh, violence that we abhor or suffering of people is we say, I don't like this. And maybe we ignore it or we condemn it, but we push it, we push it away. I, I don't want this here. I stay away from violence. And maybe this is part of the problem. A kind of, it's not me, it's them. It's not me, it's them. So I'm going to take a little side trip here, and I'm going to tell you about a talk I listened to by Stephen Batchelor, who is a Buddhist teacher. Uh, he wrote one of my favorite books, uh, which is called Buddhism Without Beliefs. And... Uh, he, is, he lives in France, and he was giving a series of talks at Upaya in Santa Fe. And in this talk, which was called The Elephant's Footprint, he talked about conversations between the Buddha and King Pasanadi, who was the ruler of Kosala, the country that the Buddha lived in and wandered in when he was alive. And Pasanadi was, uh, was his sort of chief patron. You know, he took he, uh, he gave him land and, and support, and, and he studied. He, he studied with the Buddha. And so he asked him, he said, um, is there one thing that secures both kinds of good, the good we can bring to this present life and the good that reverberates beyond this life? And the Buddha said, yes, yes. Care is the one thing like an elephant's footprint, which can contain all other footprints. The elephant is huge. It can contain all the other footprints. Care, care is the one good that can contain the two kinds of good, the good in this life and the good that reverberates after this life. Now, the word care 
is actually the Pali word apamada, apamada. And it's another one of those words like vera avera, not papamada. So it's, it's the, the negative of. So uh, papamada, papamada is um, drunkenness, wooziness, general fogginess, you know. Um, and so care, apamada, not fogginess, drunkenness, wooziness, not instability, is care. Now, the word is usually translated as vigilance, which is how Gill translated it in here. So I'm going to read you what he says about vigilance. Only I'm going to, su- I'm going to supply the word care instead of vigilance. Right? So here it is. It's chapter 2 in the Dhammapada. Vigilance is the path to the deathless. Negligence, the path to death. The vigilant do not die. The negligent are as if already dead. Care is the path to the deadless. Negligence, the path to death. Those who care do not die. The negligence are as if already dead. Knowing this distinction, careful sages rejoice in care. So, care, the interesting thing about the word care in the English language is it covers a lot of ground, you know. It's, I care about, I care for, and I'm careful of. Now, if it, if it includes the good in this life and the good that reverberates afterward, this implies that it is good that what we have, what we want, what is skillful in life is to care and be vigilant in that care and diligent in that care. And how do we care? We're full of care and we care for. Crucially, it involves relating to others, relating to others in order to care for others. Now, another reading. I've given this a lot of thought, so please stay with me because I know it's a lot of different things, but it all hangs together. So Mahagoshananda was a Cambodian monk. And uh, he was a monk at the time of, uh, that the Khmer Rouge were tearing apart uh, Cambodia, and you may have heard, if you're old enough, of the killing fields in Cambodia. And when, uh, when, when they were in power, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, they pretty much obliterated anybody who, uh, who was Buddhist. All the monks and nuns were killed. And uh, it, people were killed willy-nilly. Hundreds of thousands of people in Cam- Cambodia were killed. He happened to be in Thailand at the time, and so his entire family was wiped out. And uh, he was one of the real peacemakers in Cambodia in the end and is probably the guy most responsible for returning Buddhism to Cambodia. And so uh, this book called Step by Step is a collection of 
some of the things he had to say. And one of the things he had to say had to do with peacemaking. And I propose to you that the primary way to care in this world is through peacemaking, one of the things that is most needed in this world. So here's what he had to say. Non-action, non-action is the source of all action. Non-action is the source of all action. There is little we can do for peace in the world without peace in our minds. And so when we begin to make peace, we begin with silence, meditation, and prayer. Peacemaking requires compassion. It requires the skill of listening. To listen, we have to give up ourselves, even our own words, We listen until we can hear our peaceful nature. As we learn to listen to ourselves, we learn to listen to others as well, and new ideas grow. There's an openness, a harmony. As we come to trust one another, we discover new possibilities for resolving conflicts. When we listen well, we will hear peace growing. Peacemaking requires selflessness. It is selflessness taking root. To make peace, the skills of teamwork and cooperation are essential. There is little we can do for peace as long as we feel we are the only ones who know the way. A real peacemaker will strive only for peace, not for fame, glory, or honor. Striving for fame, glory, or honor will only harm our efforts. Peacemaking requires wisdom. Peace is a path that is chosen consciously. It is not an aimless wandering, but a step-by-step journey. Peacemaking is the middle path of equanimity, non-duality, and non-attachment. Peacemaking means the perfect balance of wisdom and compassion and the perfect meeting of humanitarian needs and political realities. It means compassion without concession and peace without appeasement. Loving kindness is the only way to peace. I think that's remarkable. And the thing about it that is remarkable is that he clearly states the only way to peace is to begin with your own peaceful mind, your own peaceful mind that can be there to listen not only to yourself but to the other person, the other people. It, it encourages us to truly understand those people that have become our enemies. I have this really strong image that has been following me around since I saw it in the newspaper on on the internet. Um, uh, uh, The reporter, Mr. Sotloff, in his orange jumpsuit, kneeling on the ground. And behind him is this person all wrapped in black and this knife. And knowing that uh, that person was going to end Mr. Sotlow's life. And seeing that image, I looked at that person all wrapped in black, 
And I wondered, I wondered, what is the despair in this person? How powerless must this person feel that this is the only way he can see to exert power? How powerless he must feel. I don't hate this person. I truly hate the behavior, but I don't hate this person. I wonder about this person. I am very sad about this person. Now, I don't love this person either. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. This is an extreme person. But it is necessary to see, feel, sense the place of another in order to be a peacemaker. And to do that, I have to be able to sit with suffering, my suffering and someone else's suffering. So when you ask yourself, what is my true reaction to this? Be sure you notice everything about your reaction. Notice what is coming up. Notice the fear. Notice the disgust. Notice all of the ways that we are aversive. And notice whether it is directed toward persons. You know, another thing that is happening closer at home for me is uh, uh, an environmental controversy in my community. And it has totally split the community. Former friends no longer speak. And it is very sad. I live in a small community, small rural community that is totally divided. And both sides are absolutely convinced that they are correct, that their way is the right way. And there is so much animosity and hatred. And I feel that. And I'm part of that. I am in that community. And I have a strong position on the, on the matter. And I have friends on both sides of that issue. And I have maintained those friends because they've allowed me to, because they too are open. And some of them are not open to one another. <laughs> not open to one another. How, how, do we see, how do we see something from someone else's point of view? What we're talking about here has been called empathy. There are lots of definitions for empathy, and there are kind of two main categories for empathy. One is cognitive empathy. This has to do with being able to imagine what the other person is thinking. I imagine that what you're thinking is, you know, I look at the, I see what's on your face, and I say, oh, you're bored, or oh, oh, you're really angry. I personally have had to wear bangs because I, I tend to frown when I'm trying to figure something out and everybody thinks I'm angry. And so to counterbalance that, I just wear bangs. <laughs> so that people don't misinterpret and ascribe something else to me. Now, I could just get rid of the habit, but bangs are easy. So... This is true, we, we do this. So there's the cognitive kind of empathy, which has to do with figuring out 
based on what you see, someone's behavior, or, you know, this is what I think they're thinking, right? And this is a very useful thing to have. This is what salespeople use <laughs> to sell you something. Oh, I think I know what you think. You're really reacting to that. Okay, I know how to make, I know how to do this. I know how to get you because this is what you respond to, right? Then there's another kind of empathy, which is emotional empathy. Emotional empathy has to do with feeling what the other person feels. Now, a lot of people think that's the only part of empathy, that, you know, you're feeling. When somebody is grieving, you feel their sadness, and you take that sadness in, and you, and you, you grieve with them. And this can be very useful, and it can also be overwhelming if you happen to be somebody who spends a lot of time with people who are grieving. But being able to understand how somebody feels is really important. You know, my, my grandson, uh, when my grandson, who is three, comes running up to me and pounds on me and throws something at me because, gee, he used to have all my attention and now his one-year-old younger brother gets some of my attention. I don't consider Duncan a bad kid because of that. I understand that he's feeling not seen anymore in the way that all of my attention used to go to him. Now, now he has to share it with someone else. And I know what that feeling is to not be seen. And so I can, I can feel, I both feel his sadness and upset, and I can project into his mind. I, I can guess what he's thinking. It's not that he hates me at all. It's that he feels unloved. I get that. And then I have a third type of empathy, which is compassionate empathy, and I want to fix it, right? I want to do something about that. I want to help. That third type of empathy that combines the other two is the part that gives rise to compassion. And it is compassionate thinking that gets us into the realm of non-hatred. It's impossible to have it in the same space. So when I am with my friends who want to see in this environmental issue, the preservation of jobs for some people, I understand why they want that. And I understand that that's incompatible with the environmental preservation that has already been set up. And I get that this is a controversy. And I can see both sides, and I understand that. And I make my own decisions about it based on my opinions and my views about it. But I don't hate anybody for feeling differently because I understand that feeling, and I can respond from that place. I can also understand the effects of suffering because I have been able to stay with my own suffering. This is so key. This is why meditation is so important and why stillness of mind is so important. It isn't so much that because we're still, we're stable, although that's very useful. It is because we come to really understand our own suffering. And we don't run away from our own suffering. We can see it, and we can stay with it. And because we can stay with it, 
we can also learn to stay with the suffering of other people. And we can accept the suffering of other people and we can see it and we won't push it away and pretend it's not there. We don't dehumanize them and say, well, you represent something. You're, you're not you. You, you, re- you represent something. You know, then it's easy to dismiss them. We find ourselves in the place where we don't care. We're not caring. Last uh, couple of days ago, uh, Wednesday, that was yesterday. (laughs) It's been a busy week. Yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Wilderness Act. Now, I happen to be somebody who really am happy about the existence of the Wilderness Act. Because I understand the importance of preserving spaces that are natural, that people can get to, that represent the goodness of the earth. And on Wednesday, I went for a walk in Drake's Estero, which is absolutely beautiful. The the Drake's Estero uh, trail is is spectacular. (laughs) Um, uh, One of my favorite beaches is Limantour Beach favorite beach in the world. It's right at the entrance to the Estero. If you haven't been there, it's just an hour up the road, folks. It's absolutely magnificent. And um, for this walk, one of the leaders of the walk was Ken Brower, who is a, a naturalist writer. He's the son of David Brower, who was a radical environmentalist, uh, whose life work was the Wilderness Act. And Ken... Uh, and I were talking about how wonderful it was to be out in the Estero and how, because we cared about that feeling in nature, we had a responsibility to preserve it for people who have never been there so that they have the chance to be there. Because if you haven't been there, It's like meditation. If you've never meditated, it seems really weird and maybe a little stupid. You know, you just sit there and do nothing, right? Until you've done it. And until you've been in some place where you can experience it, you don't know what it is. So I don't condemn people who don't value it the same way I do. But I do think it's important that I say that it has a value for me that I care about it, and that I want to take care of it. It is my apadama. In addition to coming to terms internally with non-hatred in myself, and for the rest of the world. The other side of it is that I have to adopt the willingness to care, to care about people, to care about the care for people, to take care of people. And I need to do that with the earth also. 
I know usually I don't talk about that because I try not to do controversial subjects. But I was thinking about it and I decided, you know, that person who said, you, you Buddhists are just a bunch of pacifists. <laughs> you just sit around and do nothing. I got it. I got what that person was saying. And I'm not neutral about the things in my world. And I do care about the things in my world. But I also see where they're based on views. And I see that not everybody has that view. And that my responsibility includes seeing other views. And unless I can do that, I am guilty of hatred. I am guilty of aversion. Unless I have space for other views. If I'm so attached to my own view, I am not engaging in non-hatred. I'm living right in the middle of it. It's not sufficient to see others. We have to see others in us. I talked about my grandson the other day and his coming running at me. But I also noticed that he decided to throw a fit and I I was not in the mood for that fit at that time. And he was yelling and screaming and I thought... I don't need this right now. I don't want this right now. And I realize I want what I want. Oh, my goodness. That's just what he's saying. Not only do I see that in him, but I see him in me. And recognizing that him in me is extremely important. Whenever we find someone on the other side of the fence from us, it's a good thing to notice them in us. When we're saying, you know, I know you. Look at, look at what you're doing. This is just wrong. Because I want what I want. It's not an either or place. It's not a zero sum game. The only way, the only way for non-hatred, for peacemaking in the world, is to be able to see one another. The compassionate seeing of one another. The one thing empathy doesn't do is support the we-they divide. You're over there. I'm over here. No. Empathy doesn't allow us to do that. This is why it's so important. So how do you develop empathy? Do it with yourself. (laughs) Notice yourself. Allow yourself to feel the way you feel. Notice how you feel and say, this is how I feel doesn't mean that you allow yourself to do anything you want, (laughs) but you do acknowledge that that's what's present. So so today when I was driving here, I had a a series of unfortunate near misses with vehicles coming the other direction. And one of them 
was a very large truck, huge delivery truck, that came flying around a corner toward me in my lane, around a curve. <laughs> and it was very sudden and um, a little scary. And I stopped and pulled over, and he comes flying by. And what I noticed is he had about six cars behind him. This was on Lucas Valley Road, which is a very twisty, turny road out to Point Reyes. And I imagined that those people were all behind him, and he was feeling a lot of pressure because he had all those cars behind him. And there was really no place for him to turn off. And he took that corner too fast. So what do I think about him? Do I think, what a jerk. He's got no business going that fast and jeopardizing me by coming into my lane. Or do I, do I notice, oh, my, the poor guy. He's, not only has he been putting up with the fact that he feels frustrated that all these people, he's holding up all these people, but now he's scared to death because he almost hit me. Now, my attitude to him is really different depending on which one of those things I decide about him. So, what I noticed about me was first, I was afraid, shock, afraid, oh! And then there was relief. You know, what sometimes happens with relief is there's kind of a giggly thing that comes up, right? <gasps> you know, oh, thank God, I'm still here. And that giggly stuff caused me to realize that I was actually pretty ebullient. You know, I was feeling pretty good. And I immediately gave this guy my reaction because my mood was so happy. I gave this guy the benefit of the doubt, and I, I really felt compassionate toward him. Oh, poor guy. Wow, you know. And then somebody else did something foolish, like um, drive into from a side road. <laughs> and that good mood went away right then. And it reminded me how much of this was just a matter of moods. And I said, oh, you're just, you're, you're the victim of moods. Oh, okay, I have to think about that. Oh, that's how that happens. Oh, that's how that happens. So I may not always be able to figure out what somebody is thinking. I still don't understand terrorism. I mean, I, I get the idea. It's to create terror. But I don't know how one is a terrorist. So maybe I can't understand that yet. But I can understand fear and confusion and resentment and anger over injustice. Those things I can understand. And I can imagine that those are possible there. And maybe I can't imagine what the people in the future of this planet feel. You know, the world changes all the time. They could be really different people from me. But I can know what it's like to be human and what it's like to be in the world. And so I will try to preserve the world. And I'll try to save water. And I'll try not to burn so much gas. 
because I do know what it's like to be human. And if we can't develop empathy at a distance, you know, it's kind of easy when you're just looking at somebody, you can pick up cues. But if we can't develop empathy at a distance, we have, we have too much power for destruction in this world, either by commission or omission, and we don't have a future. So, I encourage you to hold yourself gently and to notice, notice what you're really thinking and don't take the first answer. What else is happening here? What else is happening? So that you truly understand. And when you have a disagreement with somebody, just for a moment, ask yourself, I wonder what they're thinking. You know, the first thing is, <laughs> but I wonder what they're thinking. And maybe you'll even have an answer. So in the spirit of reading yet another thing, this is from David Stendhal Rast, who's a, a, a Christian monk. And he has a little poem here, which I've just hopefully not erased, called Tears. Tears. You bless us with tears. Tears of sorrow and tears of joy. Tears of outrage and tears of overwhelming beauty. May I let them flow freely, especially as the waters rise up when the ice of anger cracks and thaws in my heart and the flood tides of an oceanic feeling deep in my heart that wash my eyes from within and make me gentle toward others. I read that again. It's just an image. Okay. You bless us with tears, tears of sorrow and tears of joy, tears of outrage and tears of overwhelming beauty. May I let them flow freely, freely, especially as the waters rise up when the ice of anger cracks and thaws in my heart, and the flood tides of an oceanic feeling deep in my heart wash my eyes from within and make me gentle toward others. May the ice of your heart crack and flood open. Thank you for listening. So, comments. Tomatoes. <laughs> yes, we have something over here. I guess you live somewhat near where my daughter lives, the area that my daughter lives in. And I was wondering if she said, if she was the one that said, you Buddhists are pacifists, because she had said it to me. <laughs> But well, it was I, a male, but... <laughs> but I want to thank you because that's such an important topic with all those feelings of hatred and despair and hopelessness often. I think that's probably... And, and fear. I think fear and hopelessness are what many of us may be feeling in these times that are filled with so much hate. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, fear and hopelessness. And uh, 
and to hold that for yourself. Hold that, know that that's there because that allows you to see it in someone else. And it has to start here, step by step. It has to start with you and with me. Thank you. Anyone else? Um, so as someone who feels really connected to empathy, um, and probably many, uh, most of my life overly connected to feeling for other people, um, I guess as you were talking, thoughts came up for me around our thoughts and feelings, um, around, I guess, how that can, I guess, having empathy with, wis with wisdom, um, and it's something I, I, it's a huge part of, of my practice and something I struggle with often, and I guess for me and in my personal experience, um, to feel for people is, is, is highly valuable and a very beautiful experience, but I guess the thinking part of it I kind of struggled with um, because I haven't found it very useful uh, to guess what others are thinking. Um, so, and, and also the response, the, the response is something I haven't been able to, I can't say I haven't, I've had a lot of, uh, I guess, um, insight and practice around that, but that's something I kind of keep coming back to because it doesn't feel, it's, it just seems very, it's not black or white, you know, how to respond, like how to respond with compassion, like how that looks seems so different every time. So, um, but I guess more if you can speak maybe a little bit to, if, I don't know. I didn't. To me, it doesn't feel like it is useful to to guess what others are thinking, um, because it for me it always feels like every time it's like maybe I can kind of guess, but that's not that doesn't necessarily to me it kind of if I do want to talk about it or do want to respond it kind of feels more important just or more useful to ask or I don't know. I guess it's something that I just. It's hard for me to, I don't know, maybe you can just speak of how, how to do it with wisdom because that's something I personally struggle with. Yes, yeah, so, so that's key, that, that it is with wisdom, okay? So um, by your own uh, statement, you have a high capacity for actually feeling what someone else is feeling. And that information is very useful to you. If you are a helping person, I'm, um, some of this has to do with the, what other conditions are present. So if the reaction that you have, the response that you have to this information is that you take on someone else's feelings and they become your feelings, 
This is not wise. Because they're not your feelings, they're someone else's feelings. You merge with them in a way that is not skillful. To be able to respond as you to the feelings that you feel from them so that you understand their feelings, this is very skillful. So the distinction that I'm making has to do with a cognitive assessment of the separation between this person's suffering and my suffering and seeing them as different. And the reason that this is useful is that in order for you to give a compassionate response, you have to not be swamped by their feelings, but you have to be very true to your feelings. One of the things uh, that I, I, I'm going to tell you about somebody that I sat with in hospice. She was a, a paranoid schizophrenic, and you know, classic. Uh, a lot of people with schizophrenia don't have this... Um, well, the people in Hollywood are trying to kill me and President Bush's people are trying to kill me. And so she was that kind of schizophrenic. And she was dying and she was in a lot of pain. And she told me she didn't, that she couldn't love and she didn't know how to love and nobody and Her life was dismal. And uh, when I first started sitting with her, I kept reminding myself that this was her reality and this was my reality and I shouldn't get confused. And by doing that, I set up a barrier between us that was not useful. And so I decided that what I needed to do was actually, in order to to be compassionate with her, I had to accept her reality when I was sitting with her and not run this, oh, yeah, well, that's not really reality. What's really happening is something else. When I was with her, I was with her reality. It wasn't my reality but I wasn't running a parallel story. That was not useful. But what was useful was to just accept just what she said. This is how she feels. This is is what's going on for her. And over time, it became so natural that I forgot that she was schizophrenic. And when she was actually dying, I had stopped in. It wasn't my day, but I stopped in because I knew she was close. And uh, she could barely whisper. And she said to me, please don't leave me. They're trying to kill me. And it was devastating for me because I would forgotten that this is how she viewed what was happening to her body. And I, I came to understand in that moment that that reality was not what I mentally thought, nor was my desire for her to feel loved and not threatened real for her. She understood that that's how I felt about her, but I could not change her reality. That was not useful. That wasn't skillful. The cognitive part of me was able to say, she's dying and I'm sorry, I'm really sad, that she's, her experience of it is so threatening, how sad this is. So I could feel that sadness for her, but I could still stay there with her pain without being overwhelmed by it. 
the, the wisdom that comes from being able to see, ah, that's what she's thinking. So it's not, I didn't have to actually guess. She told me what she was thinking. So I used the word guess, but basically it's, it's mentally figuring out what's this person going through and also feeling the fear that she was feeling. And so the response that I could give to her was that I had to leave, but that whenever she was scared, she should feel my hand on her head and know that I was taking care of her. And she accepted that. It didn't require me to require her to be different than she was. It didn't require me to be different than I was. Does that help? It's helpful. Um, I don't know if my question or if my confusion was totally answered, but it was very helpful. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's not simple. It's a. It's it. It's a. I. I actually don't feel necessarily that I handled all of that in a perfect way. I keep a picture of her on my altar and have for years to remind me of the confusion. So um, it is. Uh, It is wise to be open to not knowing the answer. So I liked what you said about, I don't want to guess what they are thinking if I can ask them. This is wise. Okay, thank you. Yeah. It's time. It's time. I'm sorry. We can, we can speak afterward. It is after time. Thank you for reminding me. And, and I'll be safe. This is, I'll be safe. Thank you. <laughs>